Okay, thank you, Ken, for leading us in prayer. If you have a Bible, if you want to open it to Genesis chapter 3 with me, we'll be looking at that in a moment. If you've been with us, we've been going through the first couple chapters of Genesis, seeking to build a biblical worldview, uh, seeking to have a kind of a lens in which we look at the world guided by Scripture and I don't know how many things you have learned. I've been learning so many things through the first couple chapters of Genesis that continue to shape my worldview. If you just think of creation, God made it. Even as I look at nature uh, these days, as I see birds, we have deers that go around our house, bunnies hopping by. I just, I'm like, God made those. As I see the sunsets in the sky, I'm like, oh, he painted another beautiful sunset in the sky as the weather changes. And we know that God created the seasons. And as spring comes, as Albertans were like, we we're like, it's nice outside. We all hesitate to use the word spring. But as, as spring comes, we know that God created that. And we can celebrate every season because he has made it. And he's made it good. And even as we watch everything turn green, I'm going to have a different eyesight, different mindset. Be like, yes, it's because God made it that way. That when, when the snow melts, when the rain comes, when the sun shines and the green grass starts growing, it's like, because God made it that way. Having a, a, a worldview that God is creator, he made us and he takes care of us. That God is bigger than the news, that God is sovereign over all things. I'm seeing that as we're going through Genesis 1 and 2. I'm seeing that God made us for a purpose. He made us for himself. And life only makes sense when we surrender our life to him. So as we're in him, we should be praying often, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. If we're all made in the image and likeness of God, and if you've found life through Jesus Christ, that should be our continued prayer. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Again, highlighted that God has given us life and breath. My time, your time is in his hand. And I breathe because he, he allows it. We can rest in that. Our lives are in his hand. All life matters. From the unborn child to the oldest. Among us, all life matters because we are made by God. So I don't know what you, there's many more things we could talk about, but I'm just growing in my biblical understanding and the way in which I see the world. And I want to continue to do that. And now we're in the second part of Genesis chapter three, and we need to have a proper understanding of the fall of the curse. It's hugely important to a proper understanding of a biblical worldview. If we want to understand our world, we have to have a proper understanding of the curse that has happened when Adam and Eve took of the fruit they were not supposed to. A proper understanding of our world. They would see our, our need for a savior. Because it's, it's not like we live in a time where like, ah, you know, it's not that bad. It's like it's way worse than I could possibly describe to you what has happened as sin entered into the world. It's terrible. But, I, but as we see with great clarity as sin enters and it only highlights, it only increases, it should only cause us to look towards Jesus Christ as our only hope ever increasing. So that's what I hope we can do this evening. We look at the second part of Genesis chapter 3. I want to show you again, it's, it's way worse than you think it is. But because of that, man, Christ is a way better Savior than we could ever acknowledge. So I pray that's what God will do uh, as we open his word this evening. We're going to be looking at the second half of Genesis 3. Just for context, we're going to read all of Genesis 3. If you want to stand with me, we'll read Genesis 3 together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes 
that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Lord God said to the woman, what is it this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And, to, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments for skins of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out of his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless his word to our souls this evening. You can have a seat. One wrong thing leads to everything falling down. I don't know if you've ever seen, you can look on YouTube, look at like domino tricks, where I'm talking like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dominoes lined up, and you know it just starts with that one. And they all slowly topple down. Like that's what we're seeing, one act of disobedient and causing everything to fall. But many dominoes are like, yeah, it's a kid's game. It's kind of like, it's like some kid visiting the White House somehow gets into a place he's not supposed to. A button he's not supposed to, like, never press that button. Like, this button? And it's like nuclear war starts, and, like, everything gets destroyed. Like, one little act and destruction following. That, that's what we're looking at here in Genesis chapter 3. Last week, we looked at how the serpent came and how he... how he convinced Eve to take of the fruit. And as they ate, how their eyes were open. They found out they were naked. They went and hid from God. They went and tried to cover up the sin by themselves, and they started to blame one another, the result of sin. We're going to continue to look at the second uh, part of chapter 3, and we're going to look at God's punishment for the sin that has happened. But again, one act and everything changed, and not for the good. In, in verses 14 to 19, we see God's curse. We see God holding court, talking to Adam and Eve, God's punishment. If you look again with me at verse 14, it says, The, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. If you'll notice, here's kind of the reverse order of creation. God created man and woman. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, he created man, and then from man, from his rib, he created woman. And creation order matter, matters that, go, that man was actually in the relationship to have leadership, and then both man and woman were to rule over the animals on the ground, right? But what happened in temptation? We have the serpent going to Eve, 
Eve going to Adam, it's, it's reversed. So even we see that here in the punishment, God goes first to the serpent, then to Eve, and then to Adam. This curse that was given to the serpent, because you have done this curse, are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I think God's actually cursing snakes. And I think because of that, as we look at Genesis 3, I think the devil or the serpent, ancient serpent, kind of like possessed a snake in order to deceive Eve. Like the actual animal of snakes, it seems, are being cursed. They're being singled out above all other snakes or all other animals, sorry. And even what it says to them, that on your belly you shall go, it seems like before this happened, that snakes moved in a different way. We don't know what that was like, but for the curse to happen, you have to go on your belly before they weren't on their belly. We don't know what that looked like. So it's actual, I think, a literal curse to the two snakes, all snakes. I've never seen a snake travel any other way. And, uh, and then also, I think, symbolic, eating the dust of the ground. They're all slithering around. This is what happened to snakes because they were used in such a way to deceive Eve. But then verse 15, I believe, more than just snakes, I think God's actually talking to the one behind who deceived that ancient serpent, the devil. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That enmity, animosity, or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Other translations are your seed and her seed. And what that's saying here, one commentator says this, the word seed is also used figuratively for the seed of the serpent, but it's a different figure. The expression does not refer to baby snakes. It's referring to anyone who shares the nature of the evil one behind the serpent. Such ungodly people driven by spirits or demonic forces would work to destroy life and ultimately to destroy Christ. Alan Ross continues to say, the seed of the serpent would ultimately refer to any who oppose the true word of God. The seed of the serpent includes demons and forces of evil that may try to destroy the human race. And if you'll note, it's singular. Your offspring and her offspring are your seed and her seed, your seed and her seed. And what is the seed of the serpent if it's in singular? I think it's perhaps referring to the Antichrist who is going to come uh, towards the end of time. If I'll bring your attention to 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, 3 to 4. Paul is talking about the end of days. And he says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, talking about the return of Christ, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the Antichrist. I think the Antichrist is going to come at the end, and that is going to be, that's the seed of Satan. But of course, he has many offspring, everyone who is opposed to God. But again, notice it's singular. And so I think that's ultimately what it's going to talk about. The second part of verse 15, we're going to come back to again in just a little bit, and I will address later. So that's a curse to the serpent. First to all snakes, and then specifically to the devil, the great deceiver. Now if we look as God calls Eve to attention, or the woman, verse 16, he says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Pain in childbirth, it, it seems, it's hard for me to speak about. I can't say too much. I'm going to lead, read a kind of a, a lengthy quote from a lady, Mary uh, Caslin. She is a, a teacher at Southern Baptist Seminary and also, I guess, has a background in, in, in medics, whatever that means. <laughs> but she says this, and of course, you don't need this quote, but she goes further in to talk about the pain of childbirth. She says, childbirth is painful. I had read about it and believed it before the birth of my first child, yet nothing could have prepared me for the intense agony of labor. Labor pain is simply inex inexplicable to one who has not experienced it. Dr. Ronald Malzak, a leading expert in the field of pain, imagine that's what your expertise is. He's, this guy's an expert in the field of pain. He has recently completed research on the intensity of labor pain. He found that on average, labor pain ranks among the severest. 
According to a study, it may be exceeded only by the suffering of some terminal cancer patients and often is worse than having a finger amputated without anesthetic. It's difficult to imagine a pain-free birth process. However, that's what the Creator had in mind prior to the fall. Thus, the first part of the judgment on woman decreed physical and mental pain as well as an emotional grief and turmoil and childbearing. So it's, it's guys who are like, anyone who has witnessed birth, we, we know only by observation, but just in terms of the amount of pain that goes through. I don't know if, it, <laughs> if anyone has ever, you know, heard or, you know, said as, as kind of labor is happening and maybe the wife looks to the husband like, you did this to me. But we know as we read in scripture, it's actually Eve. It's Eve's fault there. But... <laughs> Terrible. Um, also, I just want to point this out to you in my, in my studies. I just found this out. Sir James Young Simpson, he lived in the 1800s. He's the pioneer of anesthesia. And this guy, at, at that time, he was fighting doctors to like wash their hands in between giving birth to cut down on a lot of sickness that was happening. And he sought to use drugs to lessen the pain of childbirth. But get this, some in the church argued against this. They said, no, God ordained the pain. But then he pointed to the healing ministry of Jesus Christ, like Jesus came to alleviate the cause of the curse. Right? And he actually even pointed to the creation of woman. If you remember in Genesis chapter 2, God puts man to sleep. And he pointed to that as like anesthesia. He put him to rest as he operated on him. So convincing people. I just found that crazy that people were arguing against it. But again, it's the day and age in which we live in. That it just seems so normal to us. But again, pain in childbirth is a reminder of the curse of the broken world in which we live in. Again, the curse goes on, though, in verse 16. God says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's a desire to dominate or just be independent of the man. This word, your desire, shall be contrary to your husband. The word desire is the same word used in Genesis 4, verse 7. When God's speaking to, to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do, do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This desire to dominate, to control, just as sin wanted to dominate Cain, this is the part of the curse that women will want to dominate their husbands. One commentator says this, she will seek to gain authority over her husband just as sin desired to rule over Cain. Desire is a word that emphasizes a desire to possess. The woman chose to act independently of the man and now she will have a desire to rule and possess him. She, she shall desire to control the man and to dispute the headship of the husband. Man was already over the woman before the fall, but now she will have a tendency to rebel and try to rule over him. This is part of the fall. This is part of the curse. The reality is often guys at home can kind of back away from leadership. And then wives can just have the ability to fill that void very quickly. If we, we see that this is part of the fall, just encourage wives to fight against this sinful tendency to usurp the husband's God-given role to lead. I know it's, it's perhaps not easy, but maybe if, if that's happening in your home, you need to give him time, give him encouragement to take the role that God has put in front of him. And again, husbands need to fight against the sin, sinful tendency to step back from the leadership role that we've been called to walk in. Seek the Lord in prayer. We need to walk in what God has ordained for us. But we need to just see that this is, this is one of the fruits of the fall in marriage, that this is going to happen. And so I, I would think that much forgiveness must come in marriage because we are broken people. We live in a broken world. We're not going to do this perfectly. But we can see clearly that this is one of the effects of the fall. And it says, again, in verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Again, before creation, or sorry, before the fall, we know that God created male and female. 
But then we look in Genesis 2, God made male, and then he made Eve out of man, and he, and he set up kind of this authority that the man would lead and take leadership within the home. So that was something good. We even see in verse 20 that of this chapter that Adam names the woman Eve, the mother of all living. Of course, as we, as we think about this, is this a negative thing? But he shall rule over you, and it, and it can be. It can be in a broken world that this is not done correct. We have too many examples within history. We have too many examples of countries that demean women. We have too many examples even in Christian marriages where this is not done correctly. But we, we know God's intention, what we see here in creation, and even what we see, we've looked at before, Ephesians 5.25. Paul wrote this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Before then it calls wives to submit to their husbands. That's what God has called us to, but husbands, we need to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And he died for them. He died for the church. That's husbands. We need to have that self-sacrificial type love to lead our wives with. But we see the effect of the fall. There's going to be turmoil within marriage. But God can help us walk through that. So that's the, the curse to the woman. Now look with me at the, the curse to the man in verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This is the first time that God uses the word Adam. And notice what he says at the first part, because you listened to the voice of your wife. And the thing is, because you didn't listen to the voice of God. God gave him this clear command of not to eat from that one tree. But he didn't listen to God. He listened to his wife. And what does it say? Cursed is the ground because of you. Just, just think about that. God gave him this, this blessing. Hey, you can eat from any tree you want. Like, they're all good. Except for that one. He didn't have to toil or do anything. I think he just had to pick and eat. Even remember that he was put into the garden to work it. That work was, is, is good. Is God's intention. But then now everything changed. Now life was going to get a lot harder for them. So think about this, where it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Now just think broadly with me for a moment. Bring your attention to Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. The Apostle Paul speaks of this. And Paul writes this, For the Creation was subjected to futility or frustration, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation was subjected to futility or frustration. This is, this is part of the fall. One commentator, Sir Fatty, says this, This is a very important passage showing the cosmic scope of the fall. The reason is, God had given Adam dominion over creation. So when he fell, God cursed the whole creation under him. Don't we, we know this all too well. We live in a broken world. Like the world itself is actually broken. Just, just thinking of a few examples you could add to that in your own mind. I was thinking of mosquitoes, <laughs> per se. Just think of terrible weather, of hurricanes and hail and vicious storms, of mold, of fruit rotting. Because you think all that good fruit on the tree, Adam to pick, and as, as the ground was cursed, we know there's like there's that small window in which you can pick food, and then it just goes to rot. The ground is cursed. Think about this. Sin was caused by what? It was caused by eating. And the curses for what? If you look again, 17, 18, 19. Because of, you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So now what was given to him as a gift, as a blessing, now he has to toil and work for and fight for. And as he works the ground, it's not going to be as productive as it was before. Because what does he have to deal with? He has to deal with thorns and thistles. His work now is going to consist of thorns and thistles. As I was preparing, I thought that would be a terrible name for a company. Thorns and thistles, we do it wrong the first time. It was... I didn't think it would get much. Many people, though. Sarfati said this, he would no longer be able to get enough nutrients from eating plants growing naturally, but would need to become a farmer growing crops, and this from the earth that would resist his efforts. Think about thorns and thistles, but maybe you're like, yeah, I can go to Costco. What are you talking about? Striving for food. But we need to remember, we actually live in the top 1% of the world, all of us living in Canada. And the way that we live is actually an exception to the reality of the rest of the world. The majority of people are like, yes, we must strive through thorns and thistles in order to eat. They're like, yeah, we totally get it. I think we, we're getting a little bit more and more. But the thing is, like work, it's not always going to work out. Because the ground is cursed. And now our work is going to have thorns and thistles. We just, just think about this for, for farmers as they grow a crop each year and it gets hailed on. What, what can you do? You're dealing with thorns and thistles, but think about any other type of work. If you're, you're working, your tool breaks or you run out of material. I don't know if this is in the category, but maybe the people you work with, maybe there's that certain coworker, but maybe it's just because we're broken. Maybe that doesn't have to deal with thorns and thistles, but you, I don't know, even working with technology and technology fails you. I don't know if you've ever, like, you've ever had a paper you've written and then all of a sudden the computer shuts down. Sometimes that can be our fault, but we're, our work that we have to do, whatever that is, it's going to be a toil because we're dealing with thorns and thistles. Our work now will be hard. It's still good. God created work. Work is from him, but there's a strain on it this side of heaven. So as, as we would think about that part of the, cor- the curse, one is when things work out. You're doing your work and things work out. Be more thankful. Like I think we're, we get in our minds like, oh yeah, we, everything should work out. It doesn't happen that way. When it does, we should be more thankful to God. And then those times where like, things are not working according to plan, we need to, also, we need to remember, ah, thorns and thistles. Is this, this is part of the curse instead of getting angry and upset. So I think those are two things. One, be thankful when things do work out when they don't. Remember, this is part of the curse, the world in which we live in. Going on, the curse to Adam, continuing on in verse 19, God says this, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He's talking about death. Death is part of the curse. We looked at before, Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So again, just pointing this out, there was no death before the fall. There was no death before the fall. That's quite significant. Adam and Eve weren't standing on a, a bed of dinosaur fossils. Dinosaurs were still alive. Some perished in the flood, some perished after. But I just want to point that out. If we're wrestling through theologically, there was no death before the fall. That's quite important. Death is a result of sin. No one's dodging it. No one's escaping it. Everyone will meet this fate. In, in 1900, the average lifespan was 50. Now I, I look, the average for a male is 80 for females, 84. I was thinking, why is that? I think it's because males, anytime they're like, hey, watch this. <laughs> There's a four-year gap in age difference because watch this. <laughs> but if you think, what are those numbers? 50, 80, 84. You don't keep going. There's a cap. We all die. We've, we've seen in the past number of years, people are are 
deathly afraid of death. But none of us can escape it. We all have our time to meet our maker. From dust we are made and from dust we will return. That should help us remember the brevity of life, the quickness of it. Feel the pace of life quickening. You really, we never know when you're going to go. I don't know about you, but just, man, the days are just flying by. I can't believe we're, we're in March 19th. <laughs> I had to double check. But seriously, as we read from dust you are made and from dust you shall return, death is a part of life and we need to face that. We need to ask ourselves, what are you living for? Because this, this life is but a moment. And we know there's, there's more of the, the brokenness that comes in that we live in a bo- broken world in which we have pain and suffering, and sickness, and disease, and brokenness in our mind, in our body, in our emotions. This is the world that we live in. Because of that, we need to have much grace for each other. And friends, because that is a fact, we can use that to share the gospel. Because we all understand the brokenness. It's easy to look outside and see it. It's easy to look inside ourselves and see it. And that's an easy way in which to kind of bring up the gospel. Like, man, it's, it's not the way it should be. It's, ah, it's, it isn't the way it should be. Why is that? What, what was before? What changed? And we can use brokenness, trials, pain, and suffering to point people to the Lord. Way to witness. Before the fall, again, God blessed everything good, very good. But after the fall, sin brought God's curse. And again, I just want to highlight the devil is a liar, right? He, he promised, hey, is, did God really say God's holding something back from you? He's holding back goodness from you? No, look at death, pain, sickness. The devil is a liar. This is a punishment for sin if you... Look with me at verses 22 to 24. I want us to see again the separation from God that's caused by this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to work from the ground from which he was taken. So God said, hey, because he took from the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge that only God was meant to have, and again, only a weight that he can hold. Because again, how have we done with the knowledge of good and evil? We have not done well. It wasn't for us. But then there's God's mercy in sending Adam and Eve out of the garden, not allowing them to eat from the tree of life. That in their brokenness, that they would gain eternal life in that state. So it's actually God's mercy and sending them out of the garden. Therefore the Lord God sent them out from the garden of Eden. Paradise lost. Sent out from the garden. Friends, I just want us to, to realize, to see with so clearly, we won't gain that paradise back on the earth. Doesn't matter how good we think we can have it at times, this, this is not it. This, this world is not our home. We need to remember that. So he's taken out. Look at verse 24. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life is gone. Again, reappears in the Bible at the very end. Revelation 22.2 in heaven. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The way is guarded back to the garden. God blocks the way, and as we're going to see, but God makes the way back. And as, as Scripture continues to unfold, as God even saves the people from Egypt and brings them to himself, How does God deal with the sinful people? God builds this ark and puts it in a tabernacle. And again, the ark, what did the ark have? It had two cherubim. 
point towards the middle and then where God's presence is. But then as you go into the tabernacle, you, there was a curtain in the way that not everyone could just go into God's presence. The way was kind of held back from mankind. There was a curtain in the way. And just as the angels guarded the way to the Garden of Eden, it says even in, in Numbers 151 of the Levites, those who would take care of the tabernacle and the temple, when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall, shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. All of a sudden, the way to God is blocked. We, what we see so clearly, we're separated from God. One sin, one act of disobedience. This should, again, this should allow us to see, if we see sin in our life, between us and a holy God, it separates us. What we see happen to Adam and Eve. And friends, as, as we look at this, I just want us to see so clearly it's, it's bad. It's broken. It's our reality. This is the world we live in. But yet, I, I really want us to see it's, it's not the end of the story. In fact, even as we look in the text of Genesis chapter 3, there's actually much here that should give us hope. So now I want to, if you look at Genesis, back at Genesis 3.15 with me, I want us to see a seed of hope. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That last section, it's, it's called the, the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. And I'm, I'm going to show you why we're church historians looking back to like, wow, right there, God's already promising someone to come. Again, I, I, I showed you that the offspring can also be translated seed. Seed of the woman. Someone was going to come from the descendant of the woman and would strike the serpent. Someone born of a woman, if you follow that through the Old Testament, like Eve, maybe when she had her first child, Cain, like, is, is, is this the one? We know Cain's not the one. And then she had Abel, maybe she had hope, maybe Abel, but then we know Cain killed Abel. And so all throughout the descendants from Eve, you're like, is, is this going to be the one who's going to strike the head of the snake? Maybe, maybe if you're, as you're reading scripture, you're like, maybe, is it Isaac? Abraham's son, he has him at a hundred years. Like maybe it's Isaac. It's not Isaac. You're reading scripture. You're like, maybe as you're reading through Genesis, you get to then like Joseph. Like, I think it's Joseph. Look how God used him to save so many. That's not Joseph, but we see in scripture more clearly revealed that, hey, someone's going to come from Judah. It's going to be the Messiah. Like, okay. And then David, maybe it's David. The giant kid, no, it's not David. But then we, we read, there's someone's going to come from David. He's going to be the Messiah. And he keeps kind of getting this clearer picture, asking who is going to be the one who's going to come, who's going to crush the head of the snake. Friends, when we, when we look at biblical genealogies, because I'm sure we all, like, when we're reading in our, in our quiet time, we're like, ah, got to a genealogy. I'm going to read it in detail, but what I want you to notice is that, what is it? The father had a son. The son had a son. It's always, it's men that go by the father, right, in genealogies. But we see here this promise, it's one born of the woman. Where do we start to see this kind of played out? I'm just going to bring your attention to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, verse we we usually read during Christmas time this prophecy from Isaiah, right? Where he says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Behold, the virgin, <laughs> the woman. It's not a virgin, it's the virgin. Shall bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Someone, one born of the, of the woman, her seed. He will crush the head of the snake. The Apostle Paul picks up this language in Galatians. I just want to bring your attention to that. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. 
Paul says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And Paul says this in in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many. Remember, what's another word for offspring? Seed. But referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Friends, you could actually spend a, a good time if you just studied through who is going to be the seed from one generation to the next. That God had a plan right from the very beginning. Who he would bring, who he would bring redemption to. We, we see the initial fulfillment of this, the one who's going to come and crush the head of the snake. The initial fulfillment is the cross. I just want to bring your attention to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partake of the same things. Jesus, the one born of the woman, partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 1 John 3.8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. I love that verse in Scripture. And how did he do it? Because Jesus, because he hung on the cross. Isaiah 53.5, I love Isaiah written like 700 years before Jesus came. Isaiah prophesied this about Jesus, what he would do. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Friends, if, if you're spending some time tomorrow, you have some extra time, I would encourage you, read all of Isaiah 53 and just meditate upon it, what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, that movie, The Passion. My favorite scene from there is Jesus. He's praying in Gethsemane. This isn't in scripture. It's attitude. He's praying in Gethsemane. You know that prayer where he's like, Father, not my will, but yours be done. If there's some other way that this, this cup can pass. What's he praying about? He's praying, Lord, the cup of God's wrath that he knows is going to be poured out upon himself on the cross for the punishment of our sins. But in the movie, The Passion, he's praying and there's a snake slithering around, kind of tempting him to, to not take the cup on the cross. It's coming to him, and he prays, and he strengthens, and he gets up, and he crushes the head of the snake. I love it. I love that part of the movie, but it's not in Scripture. But on, the thing is, I just say this about the passion of the Christ. Remember Mel Gibson, who made it, he's Catholic. And the passion of the Christ highlights the seven stations of the cross, Christ's suffering. But friends, the reason we have redemption in Jesus Christ is because on the cross, he took God's wrath that meant to be poured out upon us. It's not because he was whipped on the back. It's not because he has a crown of thorn on his head. It's because on the cross, he took the punishment we deserved. That's where we find forgiveness of sins. But friends, we see the one who is going to be the one to stamp on the head of the snake, Jesus Christ, and he did it on the cross the one to reverse the curse. Right when he died on the cross, he said it was finished. The curtain was torn in two. And the way to be made right with God and to be in his presence again was made through Jesus Christ. Before as we're kicked out from his presence of Eden, through Jesus Christ, we can enter back into his presence. I've already quoted Isaiah 714, a, a Christmas song. I want to quote, or sorry, a Christmas scripture, we would say. I want to quote, quote, a Christmas song. We all know joy to the world. Anyone want to sing it? So joy to the world. This is in the third stanza of joy to the world by Isaac Watts. It says this, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Right? That, Jesus Christ came to reverse the curse. He is the one from the seed of the woman to stomp on the head of the snake. Friends, has he begun this work in you reversing the curse? 
Again, sin separated us from God. Christ restores us to a right relationship with God. When we work, we are, we're going to be coming up against thorns and thistles, but we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So even though you're working with thorns and thistles, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're like, this is to the Lord. All my work can be a blessing to God, even though if I stumble through it at times. Because God created work and it's good. We, we see the, the curse in marriage, the wife's desire to rule over the husband, man's tendency maybe to back away or to, to rule with fierceness and not with love. And we know there's this great friction within marriage. But if you're in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, we can reverse that. We can have a loving marriage. Husbands can love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for them. Think about this, the time that we live in, yet we live in this broken world, yet in every area of our lives, Jesus Christ can reign supreme, led by his spirit. We can live a different way, even as we walk on broken ground. This tension of he's working in me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It may be chaos outside, but man, we're going to walk in the ways that are pleasing to God. This is the tension, the time that we live in. Of course, we read in Scripture the final, final fulfillment, the one to crush the head of the snake is in the future. Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That will be the end of that ancient serpent. I just want to bring your attention one more time there to, to Genesis, Genesis 3. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where, where, did, he, where did the skin come from? I, I, I think God used an animal, killed animals that were there present and covered Adam and Eve with skin, they came with their fig leaves, like, no, that's not working. One commentator says this, I think it's really helpful, that one verse, there's a lesson to be drawn here. First, to approach God, one must have a proper covering. Second, the man-made covering was not acceptable. Third, God himself must provide the covering. Fourth, the proper covering required the shedding of blood. Fifth, God's grace provided for them, for the covering was given before the actual expulsion of Eden. Do you see God's mercy there? kicking them out before they ate from the tree of life, covering them with garments. Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we, we see this in the Bible, even the next chapter, Cain and Abel. Why did Cain and Abel know to like bring a sacrifice to the Lord? Maybe it was what they had witnessed, what God had done for their parents. I don't know, but we know throughout the rest of Scripture, say as God even grabs the people for himself out of Egypt, the sinful people. How does a sinful people exist before a holy God? And he shows them animal sacrifice. And animals are killed for their sin, to cover over their sin. I was just reading in my devotions the other day, in Numbers 28 and 29, it just goes over, you know, every day in the temple, morning and evening. A lamb was sacrificed. Every Sabbath, morning and evening, a lamb was sacrificed. At the beginning of every month, every morning, every evening, a lamb was sacrificed. And then you could go to all the festivals, and there's these sheep, there's bulls, there's goats, they're being killed to cover over sin. If you're reading through the Old Testament, you're like, man, okay, I see the people got kicked out of Eden, and I see God's kind of making a way to, to exist with him through animal sacrifice, but I'm still waiting, like, where is the one who's going to be born from a woman who's going to crush the head of a snake? And, and you have that knowledge, and all of a sudden you're reading in the Old Testament, or the New Testament, sorry, and you read in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. 
There's this foreshadowing in Genesis 3.21 that he covered over them with the skins. And we, we know as we read in Scripture the covering for our sins is Jesus Christ. Again, we see the effects of the fall. It's terrible. It's worse than I can possibly explain to you. But you know it all too well. But do you see the seed of hope in Genesis 3? Speaking of Jesus Christ, the one who would take the curse upon himself on the cross, step on the head of the snake. Are you walking in him? Are you living for him? Friends, if you can say yes, have hope in him. Even though we live in this broken and sinful world, if you're following Jesus Christ, you're living with the one who had victory over the curse, even as we have these broken and sinful bodies. But if, you, if you're in him, you have the Holy Spirit. And you can live differently. You can live for him. You can live a life that is holy and set apart. And what that should do for us is give us hope in our hearts and joy overflowing. Not from his circumstances, but because of who we are in him, what we have in him. Because it is done in Christ, the curse is being reversed. If you want to bow with me, I'd like to close this word in prayer. Oh, Lord, I pray, Lord, you would seal this word in our hearts. And, Lord, all that is from you, I pray we'd remember, we'd take to heart, Lord, anything as for me, I pray it would fall to the ground. Oh, Lord, may we have an increasing hope and increasing desire to know you, to walk in your ways. I, I praise you that right at the right at the beginning of the fall. Lord, you already had a plan. You had a plan since the beginning of creation, before creation. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.